Hey, if you have your Bibles with you or you have a way to access the scriptures, um, also you can look on the U version if you have that on your phone. Um, you're going to find your way to Ephesians chapter 2 in the New Testament. We're going to look at the first 10 verses uh, and talk today about the next step in our series called How the Gospel Shapes. And we're looking how the gospel shapes all of the aspects of our life and the gospel being the God of the universe loves humanity so much that even though we've all decided at one time or another to disconnect from him and in a sense to be our own God, to do it our own way, and then we end up with bad choices, broken lives, and, and a sinful existence in us and all around us, God still wants us to reconnect back to him, and that's why he sent Jesus into the world to die and to rise from the dead so that we can, through Jesus, he takes all of our sin and brokenness, all of our, our lack of wisdom and bad decisions on himself, reconnects us back to God so that we can actually experience why we're, we, we were created, experience what it is to be alive. And so as we've walked through this series, we've hit a number of different things because that reality shapes everything of who we are, including of what I want to talk about today, which, which is how the gospel shapes a concept called grace. Now, if you've been in church in many of time, you're like, well, I've heard that term before, and I know what that means, and that we are saved by grace, and we throw that phrase out all the time. But in my experience as a pastor, I, I think that grace is the most misunderstood concept in the church. And in reality, it is the most essential concept to understanding, to understand, to follow Jesus. Yet we, we miss it. And we think that we get it right, because if you think, when, when I say the word grace, we always think of things like, okay, the, I can't earn my salvation. I can't be good enough for God. Grace means I'm being gracious, which there's a sense of kindness to it. And all those things are true. But when in reality, when we think, okay, well, I relate to God through this thing called grace, that's in an ideal world, but in the real world, we, have a, we struggle with this thing called grace. And the reason we struggle is because we're still in that mindset of doing it on our own. And because of that, when somebody comes along and says, by the way, you can't do anything on your own. I'm going to offer this graciously to, to you to do this on your behalf. It's hard for us to accept us because our pride says, no, I got to be a part of this. Because if I can't do anything and I'm helpless, that means I have no value. I have to have some sense of value, and our pride won't let us accept God's grace. So we, what we should live is in this context called grace, which brings us to life, which helps us to discover who we really are, that helps us to become the people that God originally created us to be when, when he, he, he initially brought us into the world. That's the context of grace, but where are we? We live in this other thing. This is the term we use, and I know it's a loaded term. We live in religion, even though we say, oh, we're, have anybody heard the phrase, oh, it's not religion, it's relationship. Anybody thrown that out? That means nothing. You know why it means nothing? Because we don't live in grace. We live in religion. What does religion say? Religion says, I gotta work really hard. I gotta be a really moral person. I gotta be good. Otherwise, God will be disappointed with me. God will reject me. And so it all really comes down to what I do. Even though I know I'm saved by grace, I still got to work in this thing. So yesterday, the majority of our church was at an event called True Identity. And, uh, the speaker named Jamie Winship, he, he covered a lot. I think we had like eight hours of teaching yesterday. So I know that there are some who are like, okay, overload, right? But he said a number of really important things. And one of the things that, that really stood out to me is that all human beings believe two lies. And those two lies shape all of our decisions. And those two lies are this. The first one is that everything in my life depends on me. I carry the weight and the responsibility for everything in my life. I want you to just think about that for a moment. That's a little overwhelming, isn't it? But that's the way that we live our lives. 
We think it all depends on us. Everything's got to happen by us. And if, and if it doesn't happen, then we're failures. So we walk around in the, in the weight of that. The second lie that we believe, which really feeds into the first lie, which is <laughs> you're not good enough to do it all. So we're stuck, right? We're stuck with, with what? Everything depends on me, but I'm not good enough to do everything. So what, what am I? I'm stuck. But we live with this weight. Those things are the opposite of grace. The opposite of grace that what God wants to bring into our life. And sadly, hear me on this. I'm not trying to condemn or, or throw shade on anybody, but, but I can speak from this perspective that one of the, the challenges is that the, in the, this community called the church should be the place where we understand grace the most, and yet we struggle with it the most. Let me just tell you from my own experience. So when I was growing up, I grew up in a really good church, had a really good family. Uh, but what the, the church that I grew up in, in, in my Sunday school classes, just like probably if you grew up in the church, very similar experience that you had, is that the, the pinnacle of, of, of what people were after, even though they would say they were after you following Jesus, was to build character and morality. Anybody understand? Like the, the, to do the right thing all the time and to learn how to do that. So even though I don't know if, if, if we articulated that, that's what the goal was. And so part of that was, was trying to make sure that we rewarded good behavior in church and in Sunday school particularly. So we did things like if you brought a friend, you got a star. If you read your Bible, you got a star. If you memorized the verse, you got a star. Anybody with me on this, right? And so, and there's a chart in your classroom and every Sunday you get to there and you go through the list of all the good deeds that you did, whether you got stars and then they go around the room and like some kid, there's one kid, always the one kid. I hated the one kid because that kid always got stars off the chart, right? They did everything. They could recite every memory verse verbatim. And you're like, I would always miss two or three words. And it's like, maybe I get three quarters of a star today, right? <laughs> and so every, every Sunday I would walk in and be reminded of how much I lacked and how much I wasn't good enough for God. Now, I'm not blaming all of the woes of my life on Sunday school. Please, there's, there was, that was like an hour and a half a week, okay? But I know what began to get embedded in me was this understanding, yeah, I hear about this thing called grace and it's wonderful, but it still depends on me. And so I remember when I would start to have a devotional life when I was coming out of elementary school into middle school and I would try to read my Bible every day and I would open the Bible and I would try to read a chapter. And if I was really spiritual, I'd read two chapters. And then I'd walk away feeling really good about myself, except for the next day where something happened and I didn't read my Bible and it would ruin the rest of my day. Not because I didn't hear from God, but because I felt like God was disappointed that I didn't read my Bible. Anybody relate to that? Because we all have. What is that? That is, we live in this thing called grace. No, we don't. That's religion. And religion kills it kills us because it puts all of the responsibility on us to somehow reconnect our lives with God so we have meaning and purpose. And God says to you and I, here's the good news. You can't do it. So stop trying. Stop trying. So with this understanding, so because this is, it took me till later middle school into early high school to finally realize that God actually does love me and grace is really good news but it took me a while to get there because I was stuck. And I still revisit that concept in my life when I start to feel like everything depends on me. When in reality, everything depends on God. What I want to do is in a moment, we'll be in, in Ephesians chapter two, but just want to walk through and answer questions as we've been doing kind of through this series that in terms of regards to grace this morning, 
Um, and this first question, very basic, what is grace? It's a term we throw out all the time, but what, what is it really? What does grace really, really look like? Well, before we kind of define what it looks like, let me tell you what grace up, ends up being for, for many of us. And I think there's two categories, and they come out in three things. The first one is this, is that grace becomes a license for us. If we understand, if you've been in the church and you hear this thing called grace, and grace is this gift that God gives you, and it means you can't earn his favor, and it's great news, but what happens is that we start to look at grace is not a beautiful context in which we can truly follow and live in a relationship with God, but if I can get away with things and not be held responsible for them, then it's a free license to do whatever I want to do. Because I've, I've, so many people I have conversations with that are just outright sinning will say to me, hey, get off me. I'm under grace. God forgives me. I can do whatever I want to do, right? Because it's grace. No, that's not grace. Actually, what that is, see, what comes along with grace is this beautiful thing, because grace is the way that we connect with God, we find relationship with God. But when we have relationship with God, God's spirit dwells in us, and when we do things that are less than what God desires for our lives, this thing called conviction comes in. And it's that little kind of like compass internally that says, ah, that's not the right way to go. That's not the right decision. That's not the right thing to say. And so because of that, you, you feel an, uh, an uneasiness inside of you. If you and I don't have that uneasiness inside of us when we go the wrong direction, guess what we're missing out on? We don't know who God is. Because grace has, has that ability. When it comes, it comes with a sense of conviction. When there is no conviction, what? It's just a free pass to do whatever I want to do. But that's not what grace is. It isn't that somehow you, you fail, but if you use it as a license, you don't understand what grace is because it leads to the second thing, which still falls in this same category. We think that grace is free. It's not. Now, it's free to us. It costs us nothing. But it costs Jesus everything. Everything. See, grace is a free gift because somebody else paid for it. You know, you ever had somebody pay for something for you? It's free to you, but it was not free to them. So grace comes to us as a free gift. Why? Because Jesus paid the ultimate price for it. So grace is extremely valuable, even though it's free. And when we think, ah, grace is free, what are we missing? We're missing a sense of humility of what it took for God to make grace free for us. It wasn't free for Jesus. And that means if I get this free gift, there's, a, there's not that I have to earn it, but there's this weight that I feel in humility before God that I'm helpless to do anything to change my life, but God graciously does this for me that I have a sense of humility and reverence and awe and respect and gratitude for God for what he did for me. I can't earn it. It's free to me, but Jesus paid for it for me. And then there's the last category, which I think a lot of us, which is the kind of the other side of the coin where we live, and that is that grace needs my help. Well, see, I'm saved by grace, but you know what? Underneath, we're really thinking, say, uh, grace plus my good morality, grace plus my good deeds, grace plus my kind of managing the sin and, and, limit, and limiting the amount of sin in my life. If I do all those things, then, yeah, then I'm good with God. Then you know you can't find that anywhere in the Bible? It's never grace plus anything. It's just grace. Because when we do that, we live in this thing, another realm that's not based on grace. It's based on shame, and shame always tells you, you're not good enough. On your best day, you're not good enough. Even if you got up this morning and you read 20 chapters out of the Bible, shame comes along and says, you should have read 25. You should have done more. And so we're like, yeah, I'm saved by grace, but boy, I better have my act together. 
that's not grace either. What is grace? The Old Testament indicates that grace is this thing that somebody gives a gift to somebody else because they're in need and they can't meet the need on their own. And the Old Testament talks about that. In the New Testament, you get the concept of forgiveness introduced and God's kindness towards us. So ultimately, when you look at what is grace, it's God's favor and kindness given to us based solely on his love. It's his favor. It's his kindness. It's his love, which means it's nothing that we earn. And it's something that we desperately need but we don't know how to live in it. Why? Because we keep going back between grace and religion, grace and religion, and we can't land where God wants us to be. So his favor and his kindness towards us based on his love, which leads to the second question. So again, uh, let me look at, we'll look at Ephesians chapter two here. The second question, why do I need grace? Maybe we're wondering, I'm pretty good. I'm a pretty decent person. I'm better than the person next to me. You don't have to look at them right now. I'm a little bit more moral. I'm not as bad as those sinners. Why do I really need grace? Because... If you think that, you don't know your condition and you're blind to the reality of your own life. So here we'll start with the bad news. Paul starts in the first three verses and he says, this is what he's saying. This is your condition apart from grace. This is your condition apart from God. This is the condition that all of humanity ends up in when we say, thanks for the the wisdom you're offering me, God, but I'll choose to be my own God and do my way and not follow you. This is what happens. Verse 1 says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince, the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom were all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Wow, what a great condition to be in. You didn't know it was such bad news, was it? I'm just living my life. But what is Paul saying here? He's saying some really important things about our helpless condition, which is this. You're dead, you're lost, and you're stuck. That's it. That's what he's saying. And you're like, well, I don't feel dead. I don't feel like I'm lost. I don't really feel stuck, but in reality, you are. Why? Because for you to change the reality of your brokenness and your sin and things that you try to fix in your life, you are dead, lost, and stuck. So what does he say? He says, you're dead. What? Dead in your trespasses and your sins. And what is he saying? All of your attempts to do what you think you can do, but only God can do, you're dead. Why? Because when you're dead, you can't do anything. A dead person can't do anything for themselves. Why? Because they're dead. And then he talks about you're lost. Why? Because you're following not the path that God has for you. You're following what? A whole different reality. You're following the lies that the enemy has given to you, and it is leading you the opposite direction of where God wants you to be. But here's the scary part. You don't know you're lost. That's, most people don't know they're lost. That's the problem. You, when you're driving in a car and you're lost and you don't know lo- you're lost, what happens? You get more lost because you don't know you're lost until you realize, oh, I'm heading the wrong direction. But if you're dead, you can't come to that realization that you're lost which means that you're what? You're stuck in the way that you've lived your life your whole life. That's why he even says you're, you're stuck in what? The passions that you, that you used to live in, all that. You're stuck in that. You can't get out of it anymore. And so you're in this hopeless state. Thus, you need grace. And grace is what? It's somebody's kindness and favor on your behalf solely based on their love because you can do nothing for yourself. 
That's why grace is supposed to be really good news. Why? Because it comes to the dead, it comes to the lost, it comes to the stuck and says there is a way out. There's hope. It's not based on you, it's based on what God is doing. So all of us, whether you know it or not, because by the way, in heaven there is no star chart. You don't get it, there isn't. You're not gonna go up there someday and say, man, that person, no, it's not there. Why? Because we're all dead, lost, and stuck. And the only thing that we have hope in is God's grace that he will do something on our behalf because we desperately, desperately need him. And just to give you context, I want you just to think about in your life, was there ever a moment where you got into a situation where there was absolutely nothing you could do to change your, your circumstances? You couldn't get out of it. I think all of us can think of those contexts and those circumstances where like you kind of reach a dead end. You're like, I've tried everything. I can't get out of this and I'm stuck. That's the reality of where we are. A number of years ago when we were in Oregon, uh, in, when we were, where we lived in Oregon, just southwest of Portland, about two or three times a year we would get snow. And that usually meant like two to three inches on the ground and it would melt the next day. So, but one, one winter in particular, and it came right in December, right just before the kind of the Christmas break, we got a foot and a half of snow, and it didn't get above freezing for over two weeks, which means it snowed and it stuck. And it literally crippled the Portland area because we weren't used to that much snow. And so kind of navigating and getting around was difficult. And so uh, we had already had plans for family was coming our way from California to come up to visit us in Oregon. And so Kim's brother and his, his family, they were coming up to visit us. And they got just north of Salem, which is about 40 minutes south of where we are. And that was kind of where the snow line was, where the snow really, you got to see where this, it had snowed and there was some active snow. We just had this, this freak storm. And so they had brought cables to put on their tires, not chains. And if you don't know, cables don't work really well in heavy snow and ice. And so they put their cables on just north of Salem and they got on the freeway and the cables lasted like a couple miles and they broke. So they limped their way off the freeway and they found themselves in a truck stop, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And they called us and said, we're stuck. And if you've ever driven like LA to Portland, it's like a 15 to 16 hour drive already without any traffic or snow. So they're 15 hours into this. It's like 8.30 at night. It's freezing outside. And now they're stuck in a truck stop. And we're like, they're like, there's no, nobody has any chains, even though they're at a truck stop, not that will fit their car. So they called and said, we're stuck. We can't get there. Can, can you guys figure out how to come pick us up, do something? We'll leave the car here. We'll figure out. So just so happens that Kim's dad had an extra set of chains that fit their car, their tires. So we're like, okay. So we said, help is on the way. So we hopped in the car, and this is before we had bought a four-wheel drive in Oregon. So we're in my 2001 Camry, <laughs> navigating roads that haven't been plowed in two weeks. And there's ice and there's snow. And so I'm slipping all, even with chains, I'm slipping all over the place. You can't go over 25 to 30 miles an hour. So it normally takes 40 minutes, takes like an hour and a half. And we finally get there, and we're like, okay, we slap the chains on. We're like, okay, we're good. Just follow us. It's going to take us a while, but we're going to get there. We know we already made it once. We can make it back. A mile down the road on the freeway, their chains break. And now it's like 10 o'clock at night. So we get out, and, and it, the snow was so overwhelming, ODOT, which is kind of their transportation department in, in Oregon, they had stopped plowing I-5 because they just couldn't keep up with it and there was ice and everything. So we're stuck on the side of the freeway. We get out of the car, we're like, okay, now, now we're in a worse situation because the truck stop is miles back and we're stuck on the freeway and we, we can't get out of this. So we're kind of looking at the broken chain and I kid you not, Kim's dad reaches into his jacket pocket and we're standing there like looking at the chain like, God, what are, what are we supposed to do? And he 
opens his hand, and he's got like three or four chain links in his hand. And I look, I'm like, where did you get those? He's all, well, about three or four days ago, I was working on my chains and had to repair them, and I must have had a couple of chain links I put in my pocket, and they just, I just left it there, and I didn't even know they were there. Of course, there were the exact chain links that we needed to fix the chains. So we fixed the chains, and on we went in our hour and a half journey to get back home. I'm convinced that God had him forget that those chain links were in his pocket. I mean, what are the odds? Are you kidding me? Like, I just happened to have in my pocket what we need for this situation. <laughs> Why? Because we had gotten to a point where literally, I don't know what to do. You're not, and in that situation, you're not calling a tow truck. You're not going to Uber anywhere because nobody's going anywhere. And suddenly, he produces exactly what we need. That's grace. That's what God does for us. That's why we're so desperate. That's why we need grace. Why? Because we've gotten to the end of ourselves and we can't do anything to change our circumstances. So God has to come through. God has to break through in our life, which leads to question number three. Look at verses four through seven because here's the flip side. Here's the good news. What does grace do? So Paul goes on in verse four. He says, but God. He doesn't say God plus us. He says God being rich in mercy because of the great love uh, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what does he do? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So what does God do? Because he's rich in mercy and because of his great love for us, what does he do? He does something that we can't do for ourselves. He makes us alive. What does that mean? Because when we talk, we throw out the term life, come to life. We always think eternal life, which means life that's really, we, our category for eternal life is the life that starts after death. You know the Bible never refers to it that way? It's life that happens now and goes on forever. It isn't like, well, we're waiting until we die to really live. No, 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 no. It starts now. And what does that look like in the world? That means, is what Paul said earlier, it says your condition is you're dead, which means even in your state of being alive physically, you have yet to tap into what it means to truly be alive, which means the majority of human beings who live their life in this world never actually are alive. Why? Because they've been disconnected from the one who gave them life in the first place. They've lost the life that God gave them. And they're trying to figure this thing out, and they can't. But what does Paul say? God who's rich in mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is saying, you deserve this, but I'm not going to give it to you. He says, what? because of his great love, he gives us grace, which is what? <laughs> I'm going to give you these things even though you don't deserve them. And what the biggest gift he gives us through grace is life. Which means what? Which means even though my life is falling apart, I'm broken, I'm a sinner, I'm stuck, I can't get out of where I'm at, God comes along and says, I'm going to restore you back to the purpose of why you were created and brought into this world. I'm going to go through and I'm going to undo all the sin and brokenness in your life because what Jesus did, he took all of it on the cross, and then for the first time in your life, you're actually going to be alive. And this is why I'm, I'm so convinced that we don't get grace because we come to church and we come to Christ, but we don't understand grace, so we're still dead and we act like it. We should be the most vibrant, excited, happy people in the world, and we're not. Why? Because we're still carrying the anxiety and the weight of trying to make it happen for ourselves. 
We're still trying to help God out. He doesn't need our help. We'll talk about what he needs because there's one thing he does need for us. That's, that comes next. But what does it look like to actually experience life? There's something that we're all missing that we never quite get to unless we understand grace because grace brings life. So one of the, the things that I always noticed growing up from my parents is that, that I experienced it firsthand, especially as I got into my teenage years, high school years, and older, is that my parents not only talked about grace, they extended grace. I got to experience it firsthand, and I got to watch them the way, in the way they treated other people. So we had a, growing up, we had a tradition in our house where um, this used to be a tradition a lot of people do, but we're too busy now, and we don't do it anymore, which is uh, Sunday dinner, which actually is lunch after church, where my mom would always cook some big meal, and she would cook more than we needed because there was always going to be somebody else showing up from church or wherever. And so my parents would always connect with people, so we'd have either a friend or a family that would come over, or we'd have some stranger sitting at our, at our dinner table Sunday afternoon. And I personally hated it, because it's like, you're invading our space. This is our family. You're not part of our family. This is my great maturity growing up, right? And so I felt that way, but then people would come in, and there was always somebody there. And there was one, one uh, single lady in particular that my parents just ended up connecting with with single women who are really going through difficult seasons of their life, and they, they needed to have a sense of being a part of a family, so they would show up, and they would become part of her family, and so there's one lady in particular, she showed up, and I remember the first Sunday she showed up, but she was just a mess. In fact, she was kind of loud and obnoxious, and she was interrupting our family meal, and I just really didn't appreciate her, but I watched as she showed up each week. My parents loved her, and we were gracious to her, and and then she had gone through a season where she, she didn't have housing and kind of helped her with housing. And then eventually we got her into an apartment. And I remember helping my dad move her into the apartment. And so we got her into the apartment. And then the week after that, she had dealt with severe bouts of depression in her life. And so the next week, the phone rang and my mom answered it. And it was this lady. And, and this, was bef this is pre-cell phone. So she's on a pay phone. Anybody remember what a pay phone looked like? Uh, she was actually in a phone booth. Anybody remember what a phone booth looked like? And she was down at the Santa Monica Pier, and she had just taken a, a, an amount of drugs that was intended to kill her. She was trying to take her own life. So she's not even really coherent other than the fact she's mentioned that she's taken something. So my mom's on the phone with her, and my mom's trying to get her to describe where she's at. And so my dad's standing next to my mom, listening to the conversation, trying to figure out, and they were able to figure out that they could tell that they knew she liked being by the Santa Monica Pier, and they could hear the ocean, and so they were trying to figure out she's got to be at the pier. So my dad takes off. My mom actually ended up calling, or my dad, my dad, before he left, mom got off the phone, and then he called the police, and then my mom got back on the phone with her and called, and she was still there. So my dad drives down to Santa Monica from Van Nuys, and just at the same time, the police arrive. They got her. They take her to the hospital. They pumped her stomach, and they saved her life. The paramedic said if it would just been a couple more minutes, she would have been gone. And I remember after she went through this, we... We brought her into our home, and I remember just, okay, then I really got this understanding of grace. Because here's a woman who is so broken, she can't even help herself. And so it was amazing to watch our family, and then there was a number, like three or four other families in the church really surrounded her and loved her. In fact, this is the cool story. This is the long, or the short version of a long, long story. She went through recovering. She, she got free from the substances she was using. She helped, she figured out how to manage the, the mental illness she was dealing with. She went back to school and got a master's. And you know what she, she did after that? She became a counselor, therapist for people dealing with depression. 
God's redemptive purpose came out in her life. And out of her brokenness, where she could do nothing to help herself, people came alongside and demonstrated God's grace, and God used that for her to become the person God always intended her to be. See, that's the kind of grace that God wants. That's the way grace works in our life. And that means if we don't know grace, we don't know life. We don't know what it is to be the person God created us to be. Why? Because we're still trying to make it happen for ourselves. In the kingdom of God, there is no self-made man and self-made woman. There's only God-made people through grace. And the sooner we learn that, the better it will be for us and those people around us, which leads to the fourth question. How does grace work? How does it actually work? Here's the one ingredient, the one like small percentage of this whole thing that God wants from us in order for this whole thing to unfold. Verses 8 and 9 in Ephesians chapter 2 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Anyway, that's Paul's way of saying, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there is no star chart with God. You can't boast. Why? Because none of us are good enough for God. And the good news is, you don't have to be. You don't have to be. But what is, what is the one thing? Faith. Faith is the one ingredient that is required of us in order for God's grace to take root in our lives. But what is faith? Faith is a loaded term because we use faith again. <laughs> so We do this in the church all the time. God didn't do that in your life because you don't have enough faith. What does that mean? That means in order for God to do something good in my life, I have to earn it. Oh, you just need more faith. Have more faith. Well, it's the same thing as religion. Be a better person. God will like you more. No, what is faith at the core? There's actually probably a better term for us to use today that we understand more because it's relational. It's called trust. Trust. In fact, trust is very disarming because trust doesn't require you to do anything but be very vulnerable and to release and surrender everything to God. So Paul is saying, listen, in order for grace to take root, you have to what? You are saved through this thing called trusting God. That's how it happens, that you trust God. Because in reality, you and I realize the reason humanity got into the situation that we're in is because we trusted ourselves instead of trusting God. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. They had everything. They had the perfect context. Can you imagine having everything at your disposal, everything you need? There is no sin. There is no bitterness. There is no brokenness. There is no death. There's all of this creation around you. And then God gives you the ability now to continue on in his creation. And and he says, you can have all of this, everything that you need, except there's just one thing that you don't need. And I don't want you to worry about it. And I don't want you to touch it. And if you leave it alone, you'll be fine. And what did Adam and Eve do? We'll take the one thing. Why? Because the serpent comes along and says to Eve the very lie that we all believe. God's holding out on you. You can't trust him. He doesn't want you to eat from that tree because if you eat from that tree, you'll be like him and then he'll be obsolete. That's what the enemy was saying. And Eve believed it and Adam believed it. And then we all, for all of human history, we have believed the same lie that we don't need God to be the people God wants us to be. No, we need God. Desperately, we need God. But how do we go through this? We have to trust God. We can't trust ourselves. That's when we get into trouble 
So think about that in your own life. Where have you made decisions where you trusted yourself? You trusted your own wisdom. You trusted your own guidance. You trusted your own judgment. Those are the places that you found yourself struggling. In fact, yesterday, Jamie Winship in the, in the True Identity, he talked about David's life. And you could, he said, you, as you read through David's life in the Old Testament, you always find out where David went right and where David went wrong. Where David went right is when he inquired of the Lord. When David went wrong is when David thought to himself. When you and I think to ourselves, we are in trouble because we don't have what it takes to do what's going to happen next. And in our own wisdom, we're sunk. So God says, listen, if you will trust me, then grace will come to bear in your life. If you'll trust me with everything in your life. And here's the hard one. Can you trust God with your hopes and dreams? See, I think we can trust him with our sin, but can you trust God that he has a better outcome for your life than you think you're supposed to have? I don't think some of us believe that. That's why we think we gotta help God get us to where we're supposed to be. But we don't realize if we're willing to surrender everything, even our agenda to him, that what he has is so far greater than what we can conjure up that, that if we would just surrender to what he wants to do in our life. Just think about this for a moment because Jesus who demonstrates for us what it is to fully be human, by the way, even though we know he was fully God, he was fully human, he gives us insight into what God does when we surrender ourselves to God's purpose. When Jesus was tempted in Matthew chapter four, one of the final temptations of the three was the enemy came to Jesus and said, here's all the kingdoms of the world and you can have all of them if you just take a shortcut with me right now. If you just bow down and worship me, I'll give all of them to you. Jesus knew what the pathway that the father had laid out for him. It was suffering and it was dying for the sin of humanity. That was the pathway. And the enemy comes along and says, ah, you don't have to do that. You don't, you don't have to do that. You don't have to die. You just need to sur surrender to me and worship me, and then I'll give you everything that you came for. And aren't you glad Jesus didn't buy that lie? Because here's what happens, is Jesus goes through suffering and death and resurrection, and he sends back to the Father. And then in, in Philippians chapter 2, it says this, and this is what we quote all the time, but you have to see this. What did the Father do for Jesus that Jesus surrendered to him? It says that someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. How did Jesus get that? Because he surrendered to the will of the Father. That's why. And Jesus became, what, the savior of the world. Why? Because he surrendered to the will of the Father. If God can do that in Jesus, what do you think he could do in you? If you surrendered your agenda. But here's where we get tripped up. We think we have to make it happen. We think we have to earn God's favor. We think we have to make something of ourselves. We think that we're responsible for everything in our lives. So we always live with this angst and this edge that I've got to be better and I've got to do more. Why? Because I have to prove myself. That's why in the first two temptations, the enemy knows that that's the temptation of all humanity, but Jesus doesn't buy it because in the first two temptations, the enemy starts by saying, if you are the son of God. What is he saying to Jesus? You got to prove who you are. You have to prove to me. Jesus didn't have to prove to the enemy. Why? Because if you go back to Matthew chapter 3, which I've mentioned this a number of times, that is the baptism of Jesus. And before Jesus ever does anything, the, father, the voice of the Father says what? This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus didn't do a miracle yet. He didn't teach. He didn't do anything yet. And the Father says, I'm well pleased. Why? Because he's my son. And that's, the reminder is, with God, with grace, there is no if. It's not a conditional phrase. If you do this, 
then, no, no, this is who God is, and this is what he wants to do. The only thing that is required is surrender. Give up. Stop fighting God's grace in your life. Stop trying to do it on your own, because what he has in mind is far greater than what you can possibly imagine in your life. And that leads to the final question is this, and this is in verse 10. It says, what, this question is, what does grace produce in us? What does it produce? Verse 10, Paul says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this is the whole reason for the first nine verses, is what? If we realize that what? We are dead, lost, and stuck, and the only hope we have is if we surrender to God and trust him through his grace that he'll bring forgiveness and wholeness and reconnect us back to him, then what is the outcome in our life? It is the masterpiece that God designed you to be that you've never become because you have been influenced and distorted and twisted by sin and brokenness in your life. That means that if we don't access grace, we never get to be who God called us to be. We never get to live the life that God created us to live. And so, in a sense, we're never really alive. But what is Paul saying? Before you were even born, God had already mapped out a unique purpose for your life. His workmanship, his craftsmanship, his, as the master artist, the master painter had created this masterpiece. But somewhere in our lives, what? It was tainted. It was distorted. It was broken. But God is trying to restore that in our lives. Now, we can find usefulness and we can find some sense of purpose in our life apart from God. People do it, but we can never be fully who God created us to be. We can be something, but we can't be the thing that God wants us to be. Here's an example of this. Take a look at this picture. Most of you have been in the church for a while. You probably recognize that room. Anybody know what room that is? It's the room we're sitting in right now. That is the, what used to be a warehouse, which is this part of our, our, our building, which is our auditorium, our sanctuary. And uh, it was a warehouse, which means things got stored there. They drove a forklift in and out of the roll-up door that's behind this wall over here. And it, used, it, it served its purpose for a number of years, but it's pretty ugly. And it just had things sitting in it. And when we got it, it was dusty and musty. And the windows over there were terrible. That's why you don't see them right now. They're covering it up. But it just it wasn't a good place. It was, it was a mess. And so we have it. And now take a look around you. Just looks a little bit different, doesn't it? Just a little bit different. But you know, more important than the appearance of what you see in this room is what happens in this room all the time. A warehouse is good, but a sanctuary is better. And this room, it's not that God lives in this room because he, he, he dwells in each of us, but God does powerful things in this room. He does it on Sundays in the morning. He does it on Sunday nights with the Spanish church. He does it on Wednesday nights in our youth. And any other things that happen in this space are far more significant than what happens in a warehouse. Why? That's God's redemptive purpose of grace. God has a greater desire and purpose for our lives that he wants to get us to, and grace is the avenue that gets us there, that comes through surrender to him. That's the way that God works in our lives. And so I'm going to ask the worship team if they would come and they would join me. We're going we're gonna to head towards the time of communion to commun uh, conclude our service, but I, I want us to, to embrace what, what God is doing in each one of us because, again, 
This is one of the most misunderstood concepts in the church, but one of the most important. So going back to those first three misunderstandings of grace, this is what I want to encourage you to do this week. Here's some homework for you. If you looked at your life and you would say, you know, I, I really think that I have used grace as a license, that I've understood this thing called grace, but I just thought it just means I'm not accountable for my life and I can do whatever I want to do, and you really haven't felt a sense of conviction, then I want to encourage you, this is your homework this week, is to be up on the screens. I'd encourage you to read Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. I'm not going to read it right now. This is, this is for you to do later. And then to pray and say, Lord, what do you want me to know about your grace that I've missed? What understanding do I have that need to have that I lacked before? And maybe you're in the place that you think, oh, grace is free. I mean, so in a sense, it's kind of cheap, but it's free because you've forgotten that grace was costly for somebody. Read Luke chapter 23 and again pray and ask the Lord, what, what have I missed about your grace? And then maybe here in the other category, which is grace requires my help. I want to be in grace, but man, I always feel this tension. I've got to somehow make it happen. Then I'm going to encourage you. I want you to read John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. There's an amazing story there that reminds you that you and I are helpless. We're dead, we're lost, we're stuck, but God loves us and does something profound for us through his grace. So before we go to communion, I want you to understand what, what we're about to do in these elements or in the importance of what's going to happen. In a moment, you're going to be able to go to the tables. There's two in the back, two in the front. There's some gluten-free options over here on, in the back corner here. But more than the elements you're about to partake in, which in the physical, we know that they're, they're a cracker and juice. <laughs> but they're symbols that point to something far greater than what they are. Because they're reminders to us about what Jesus did on the cross for us, his death. And, and his death for us is the restorative element that comes to us that takes what we've done and what the world has done to us and begins to restore the places of brokenness in us to what God created us to be. So I'm not a, a, a huge like, like art person, but I can appreciate art. But I know that one of the things that's interesting about what many masterpieces today that we've had that maybe go back hundreds of years when they were originally painted is that when somebody first painted a, a, what was considered a masterpiece, it might not have been a masterpiece at the time. It was significant. But as that, that masterpiece or that painting kind of went through time, people would, would add to it or try to help it to be a little bit better than it was. So they would add paint in certain areas or they would do different things to the painting or they even might, might even change a little bit of whatever is in the painting. And this would happen over time. And so people would, would, with great intentions, try to improve upon the original masterpiece. But then over time, you would begin to realize the difference between what was original and what was added on later. And then fast forward 100 years or 200 or 300 years later, somebody comes along and they see a glimpse of what used to be the masterpiece and they see all the stuff that covers it. And they realize this painting needs to be restored to what it was originally supposed to be by the original painter and master who painted this painting. And the process of restoration for a painting is time-consuming. It's detailed. It takes a lot of focus. 
Because what happens is you have to mix certain solvents to get old paint off without removing, removing the original paint, without damaging it. And so it takes hours and hours of detailed work. And eventually, if the restorer knows what they're doing, you finally get to see what that original painting was supposed to look like. Why? Because it's been restored to the masterpiece that the master had in mind when they originally painted it. Jesus' death on the cross is the restorative process of the masterpiece of our lives. And God's grace comes along and says, listen, you can't uncover the brokenness in your life or you can't fix the additions you've added to my masterpiece to try to make your life better than you think it is or better than I could have made it for you. You can't remove those things. You can't fix those things. You need somebody who's a restorer to do that for you. And Jesus is the one who restores. So today, when you take the elements, what you and I are submitting ourselves to, we are, as you partake in the elements, this is, what, this is why communion is so important. You are entrusting yourself fully to God's restorative purpose in your life, which means I am surrendering, because part of communion is what I'm identifying with Jesus' death. I'm dying to the old way that I used to try to make my life work. And now I'm going to let God clean off the dust and the dirt and the old paint and then restore me what, back to what Paul said in, in verse 10. The workmanship, the craftsmanship, the masterpiece that I'm supposed to be. And that means for some in this room right now, you have lived, but you've never been alive because you've never fully embraced God's grace because you haven't fully surrendered your life. You haven't trusted him fully with your sin and brokenness and your hopes and your dreams because your hopes and your dreams are far less than the masterpiece God created for you to be. So let's go ahead and close our eyes and, and just praise. Lord, in these next few moments, as we partake of communion, as we remember your sacrifice and what you paid for grace, that Lord, we don't come to this place in shame, but we come in humility. We don't come in arrogance, we come in conviction. And ultimately, Lord, when we come, we come with a gratitude that says thank you for making a way to get us beyond being dead, lost, and stuck. So, Lord, in these next few moments, would you begin the process in our lives of restoring back to us what we were supposed to be? Remove the brokenness, remove the places where we failed and all of our own wisdom and all of our own attempts. Would you bring your forgiveness to bear in our lives so that we can be restored fully to what you created us to be? Thank you, Jesus.